If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and we have something uh, out of this world for you today. Uh, You may have heard the James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, released uh, the first images uh, from space looking back billions of years ago. And I don't understand what any of it means. And so to explain it to me, I have Dr. Morgan Fraser, who is a lecturer and assistant professor in the School of Physics in University College Dublin, who's hoping to use the JWST stuff for his research. Thank you so much for coming in to chat to me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Will you explain to us, first of all, what this is, this telescope, and why it's better than the telescope you have in your house, in your attic, looking out at the stars? Okay, well, there's there's probably two reasons why it's better than the telescope you might have at your your home. The first is it's a lot bigger. So it's got a a primary mirror that's six and a half metres across. Um, So it collects a lot more light. And the second reason why it's a lot better than the telescope you have at home is it's not in your back garden, it's in space. Right, okay. And having, having telescopes in space um, offers a couple of big advantages. First of all, we can see colours of light, what we call wavelengths of light, that you just can't see from the ground. Okay. And the second big advantage is that when you're in space, you're above the atmosphere, so you don't get the effects of clouds or weather. You also don't get light being blurred out by, by turbulence in our atmosphere. How do they how do they know what direction to point it in and how do they control the direction that it's pointing in? So it's it's controlled from the ground. So a, a kind of a series of observations will be will be sent to the telescope basically telling it what to point, what instruments to use. And how that's decided is there's basically a process where astronomers from all over the world apply to use the telescope. Right, okay. So you have to write a telescope proposal, you have to say what you want to do with a telescope and why it's important and what you're you're going to study. And there's a panel that looks at that and basically says, you know, well, what are the very best uh, telescope proposals that we have this year? And then those those astronomers get uh, allocated time. So the telescope is not doing just one thing. It's doing a whole bunch of different science programs for, for different different people. There might be somebody who wants to use it to look at, at very, very distant galaxies in the early universe. There might be somebody who wants to use it to look something right next door to look at planets forming in our own galaxy. Right, okay. And so it's just up to like whoever does the best application to steer to, to steer this committee to say like, it, yes, you can have it. it. Exactly. So it's a competitive process. And then and is it just about like what direction you're sh- like what you're pointing the camera at, basically? Effectively, it's where you're pointing the telescope and also what instrument you're using. What instruments are on it? So uh, when you have a a telescope on the ground, you typically might just have a a camera on it. Some uh, amateur astronomers often use like a a digital camera, you know, like a Canon or something like that. So JWST has four different instruments on it and they're each optimized for slightly different purposes. And it has a mixture of cameras, what we call imagers. Mm -hmm. So you take a picture. Um, and you're taking a picture looking at specific uh, colours or wavelengths of light. Um, the other instruments are what are called spectrographs. So these are um, these are like a prism. 
You right. know, when you look at light through a prism and it gets... Like the Pink Floyd it. album. Like the Pink Floyd yeah. album, exactly <laughs> like that. Um, so you see the colours from different stars or galaxies. And what you can do is, looking at those colours, you can tell an awful lot about about what you're looking at. You can look at typically how far away it is or how fast it's moving, what it's made of. So you can see specific elements will have um, colors associated with them. So you can you can use this to kind of get a fingerprint of a star or a galaxy or whatever you're pointing at. Is it? It's, it's something that I can't get my head around and maybe you won't be able to describe it, but it seems weird to me that no matter what direction you point the telescope at, it's looking at the past. Yeah. But but I don't understand how that can be. <laughs> okay, so so first of all, I would say you know it's um, a lot of this is quite um, quite unintuitive to us. Yes, okay, and that's that's because we're humans. We've you know we've evolved to understand things that are you know basically as fast as a person can run, as far as you can see. Yes, okay, you know a few years. These are the sort of time scales, distances. You know we we understand. We can get in our our heads around. When you're talking about space, you're often talking about, you know, light traveling for millions or billions of years. And it's that's something that intuitively, I think, is is hard to grasp. So basically, because light travels at a speed, light doesn't travel infinitely fast, travels about 300,000 kilometers per second, pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have something that's very far away from us, that light will take some time to reach us. Okay. So, I mean, even us sitting here, we're about a meter apart. The light that's leaving you, that I'm seeing with my eyes, you know, travels the, the sort of meter between us in, you know, a fraction of a nanosecond. We don't we don't notice that, that time delay. You don't know delay. the delay. Exactly. Yeah. When you're looking in space over much, much bigger distances, you do notice that delay. So, even if you look at the closest galaxies, the light you're seeing from them will have typically left uh, a few million years ago. Okay, Even so within our own galaxy, if you look at stars, the light from stars might have left anything from a few years to a few centuries, a few millennia ago. And so, like shooting stars, they're so they're not shooting in real time. Like they're not falling in. You're not seeing them happen. It happening in real time. So this is the other problem with astronomy. Um, a lot of the names we use for stuff is really incredibly misleading. So shooting stars, we actually do see in real time. Okay. So shooting stars are are in our atmosphere. Shooting stars are little bits of, of meteorite rock, basically dust left over from the formation of our solar system that's burning up in the top of the atmosphere and we see a little streak of light. So those, you know, they're pretty close. It's typically a few tens of kilometers up in the atmosphere. So those we see pretty much instantly. In real time. So, but when we look back, when we look back into the galaxy, into space, what we are seeing is not what's happening currently, it's what happened whenever that light left wherever it left. Exactly. So, I mean, the the kind of... Um, so the if they were looking... So imagine there were humans on the other mm. side of that photo looking at us. Yeah. Would they be looking at, like, dinosaurs or something? Be looking at dinosaurs. They could be looking at, you know, a thousand years ago. So we can't communicate the image because the light can't travel fast enough to get to them. So we can communicate, but only only at the speed of light. So even if we send a message out into the galaxy now to the nearest star, it would still take a few years to reach it. Okay. Space is really, really big. <laughs> but what about the speed? Like if we send a message via sound, does sound travel slow, slow more slow? Sa- sound would be slower. Um, so that would be, that'd be even worse. The 
basically the fastest thing you have is light. There's nothing faster than that. Which is why when you hear a plane above you, you don't see it in the same place that you hear it. Exactly. Because it's moving faster than the speed of sound. Or, or lightning. Or lightning. You see the flash of lightning and then you hear it a few seconds later. Later. Okay. Okay. So when we see the pictures coming back from James mm. Webb, what we're looking at is not there anymore, really, because it was billions well, of years ago. Some of it will be billions of years ago. If you're looking at something pretty close by, and I mean close by in cosmic terms, you could be looking at something where the light left us left maybe 10 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And that case probably is still there. What's the value of looking at something that happened so far back? Oh, that's a big question. You know, I, I, I <laughs> so, just kind of yeah. be like, why, 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 why are they doing Why do it? we care? Okay. And so, um, Apart from that, it's really cool to be hmm. like, oh, look at that. Okay, so there's a, a couple of... of a couple of big reasons that JWST was built. The first big reason was looking at the early universe. So we know that our universe started about 14 billion years ago, give or take, in a big bang. How do we know that? So we know that because we can see a sort of a little echo of light from the big bang in the sky. It's called the cosmic microwave background. So we can see this this fading away glow from it. We also see other things that all of the galaxies we see in the sky are, are moving apart from each other. Right. This is a consequence of, of the universe expanding, of space expanding. Yes. And we can track that back to the Big Bang. So, but we don't, and, and that's why we, don't, we think there was nothing before the Big Bang or well, nothing that we can see. We don't know what was happening before the Big Bang. Um, that's, that's a really difficult question. Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, no, 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 it's fine. Okay, we can come back to that one. Yes. Um, so we're, we're interested, though, in... We know the universe started in the Big Bang. Um, we want to try and find out how the universe... How it looked early on. How galaxies formed. How the first stars formed. And to do that, we need to look really, really far away. So we basically see stuff that's far away. The light has been travelling to us for a very, very long time. This enables us to effectively look back in time. And, and watch see the, the Big Bang. Not quite the Big Bang, but just after it. Right. Um, so we see the first the first stars forming, the first galaxies forming. Um, so understanding basically where our universe comes from, where all of this, how it all started, um, that's one of the big goals of, of JWST. But does it look like, based on the photographs that have been sent back, which I understand are sort of like rudimentary shots that have just been like, look here, the, he's, they're not too uh, perfected yet. So JWST will certainly get better with time. See, the longer we, we use the telescope, the, the, the better we are at, at refining refining them, extracting as much information as possible from the images. So the, the set of images that were released were basically a, a, a showcase of some of the capabilities. It's, it's your, your brochure showing, you know, look what we can do. It works. Here's some beautiful pictures. And so some of those images uh, were very, very distant galaxies. And we can look at those galaxies. We can work out things like how massive those galaxies are, how many stars are in them and how old they are. Did we not know any of this before from Hubble or anything that came before it? So Hubble just wasn't as sensitive okay. as JWST. Um, the other interesting thing that's perhaps a little bit tricky, um, uh, or I find a bit tricky to get my head around, is when you're looking at the light from these very, very distant galaxies... Um, the light you're seeing now is a lot redder than when that light was emitted. So Why is that? Well, we know the universe is expanding. 
So light, light waves expand along with it. Okay. So when we look at the very, very early universe, very, very distant galaxies, the light is what we call redshifted. Right, okay. So if you want to study the earliest galaxies, you've actually got to look at the really, really red part of the spectrum. And while the Hubble Space Telescope was fantastic, it didn't go as far into the red as JWST is. JWST is really optimized for looking at very, very red light. Okay. Um, so that, that's one of the kind of things, that, uh, one of the reasons for building JWST is the early universe. Um, there's a whole bunch of other reasons. Just to give one, one other kind of nice example, though, it's a little bit closer to home. Uh, JWST is also designed uh, to help us look at planets outside our solar system. Okay. Which so, are... are- I, I only know the ones that are in I only know the mnemonic okay. <laughs> so we, we have we have eight or nine of them in our solar system depending on who you ask um, officially there's eight um, poor Pluto poor Pluto yeah it <laughs> got a rough deal <laughs> got a rough deal so, so there's, there's um, let's say eight and a half planets in our solar system yeah. um, that's going around our sun which is our star mm-hmm. if you look at all the other stars in the sky an awful lot of those, in fact, the majority of them, will have their own solar system, their own planets going around them. Like the stars we see at nighttime? Like the stars we see at nighttime. Have planets? Have planets. Right, okay. So um, these are called exoplanets. And we've been able to find them for the last uh, last 25 years. There's been a number of surveys looking, finding planets around other stars. And are they like substantial or are they sort of floating rocks? They're, they vary. Okay. There's, just like in our solar system, you've got, you know, tiny little Mercury, you know, a small rock sitting close to the sun. You've got big gas giants like Jupiter and like Saturn. So the planets we find around other stars, there's a big diversity there as well. Okay. So um, we see rocky planets bigger than the Earth. We we're, It's hard to find ones that are just like the Earth because the Earth is fairly small. Um, we find big gas giants as well. Um, once you found these planets, you want to tell a bit more about them. You want to see, you know, what are they made out of? What's, you know, what temperature are they? Did it have weather on them? All this kind of stuff. And one of the cool things that JWST can do is it can help us answer some of those questions. But it hasn't done so yet. It has. One of the, one of the pictures, um, and this was, uh, I think, they undersold this. Um, okay. So, you know, there was like half a dozen uh, images they released. Yes. And it was, you know, beautiful pictures of a galaxy or like a cloud Nebula, of gas. Yeah. Nebula. So there was one that was just like a squiggly line. Right. And it looked a bit... Mm, underwhelming. Underwhelming, that's <laughs> it. Actually, that was one, in my opinion, that was one of the coolest images uh, they, they released. So what that was was a spectrum of the atmosphere of an exoplanet. So what that is, that's taken the light from a star. Imagine... It's hard to show, I guess, in a podcast, but we'll, we'll you try. can see at least. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so imagine you've got a star over here. So it's okay. behind the microphone, and imagine the microphone is a planet. Okay. And your JWST, so you're sitting over there. So on the other side of the planet, yeah. You're the other side of the planet. You can see light from this star passes through the planet microphone and to you. So a tiny little bit of that light will pass through the atmosphere. And by... And will be absorbed by whatever elements are present in the atmosphere and pass on to you. So you can sort of see a fingerprint of the atmosphere of a planet, what elements are present in it, superimposed in the light of the star. And what was what were the elements? Well, they found evidence for water. Um, oh, yeah, I heard about this. Sort of like some sort of precipitation. Yeah, so the planet that they were looking at is what's called a hot Jupiter. 
So, you know, Jupiter yeah. in our solar system, big planet, big red spot on it. So imagine if you had that, but it's right next to the sun. So close to the sun that it's going around every every couple of days. Right, okay. It'd be very, very hot. Um, but there's it, water on it. There's water on it. There's water vapour in the atmosphere of that of that planet. So it's a big gas giant, but with, with water vapour in it. But is there is there is the star that it's orbiting as hot as our sun? Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. Probably a little bit cooler. Yeah, because otherwise, wouldn't it? Unless it's not water, because otherwise, if if like if if there was water that close to the sun, it would surely just evaporate or just. Well, it would. It would. It wouldn't be water, liquid water. It right, would be, okay. be in the atmosphere as, as water vapour, essentially. And so if there's water, it's water, well, like, one of the arguments we've heard for, like, there's no life on other planets because mm. other planets don't have mm. water. Mm. Does, is that why it excites people? Um, it excites people, I think, because it's a, a, a technological uh, tour de force. Right. Okay. Um, so a planet that basically like Jupiter... That's you know very very close to its 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 host star. Mm-hmm. Even if there's water vapor in the atmosphere, you don't really expect to find life there. But if you can do it with a planet like Jupiter, you could do it with planets that are more similar to Earth around other stars. So that's kind of the excitement. And is that like underneath it all, like all the science aside mm. and all the like applications for I want to point it in this mm. direction? Are we looking for? basically humans on other planets is that ah, the goal now <laughs> nah, that's a big question right so I think finding humans on, on another planet or intelligent life maybe even intelligent life is is perhaps a stretch okay so I mean I'm happy so, to hear that to finally well, put that to bed no no it's not putting it to bed <laughs> right Okay, let's. Um, what do we know about life? Well, we have we have one example of a planet with life on it so far, the mm-hmm. Earth. Um, the Earth's what four and a half billion years old, and okay, I'm not a, a, a biologist or a geologist, so this is probably completely wrong. So you should get on one of those those guys <laughs> next next week, right? So basically, as soon as the Earth cooled down enough that it wasn't um, it wasn't a big molten ball of rock, yeah. You had life. But so it was here from the get-go. Life started very, very early on Earth, but very, very simple life. Like so single-celled single, single organisms, basically yeah. slime on a rock. Yeah. So if you look at the Earth, you say, well, bang, straight away you get slime on a rock. But then it's a very long time before you get even complex multicellular life. Certainly a very, very long time, four and a half billion years before you get intelligent life, us. Mm-hmm. So, um, astronomers are notorious for taking one data point and extrapolating out, um, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> so you could say that, well, what we see for life in, in our solar system is it's easy to have life, it's hard to have, have uh, complex intelligent life. Okay. So, if Are there we, other slime on a rock planets? We don't we know. Don't know. We oh, don't right, know. Okay. But, I mean, I would, I would say if JWST does find... Um, certainly there's, there's interest in, in looking for signs of life on exosolar planets now um, but if you're to find that life it, it's probably going to be slime on a rock mm-hmm. and the signs of life are, are going to be 
basically looking at a planet and seeing, well, over a year you have some seasonal variation in methane in the atmosphere or something like that. You know, these are the kind of very... You're not going to be like pointing at it and being like, oh my God, they have a McDonald's. No, no. no. <laughs> so so, so when, when, when astronomers talk about finding life on other planets, it, it's, it's sort of indirect evidence that is consistent with life. Um, okay. And so that, again, is, is one of the things that people, you know, people will, will use GWST for. And even if you don't find life on other planets, um, and there's an awful lot of interesting interesting science you can do by, by pointing a telescope at, at planets outside our solar system, you can learn about how those planets form. So, I mean, we look at our own, uh, our own solar system, right? You have small rocky planets close in. You have sort of gas giants, ice giants further out in the solar system. How do they form? Is that where the planets formed or, or you know, did they move in a bit? Um, why, why do all our planets look different? You know, why is there such a diversity in the planets in the solar system? Why do we have an asteroid belt? You know, the, the questions, you know, we can look at the solar system and indeed we do look at the solar system a lot trying to figure out how it was, how it started, how it formed, why it looks the way it does. But you learn an awful lot more by looking at other examples of a solar system, other examples of planetary system as well. So it's curiosity for curiosity's sake, not for like, we're not looking with JWST to to the ancient galaxy to say like, okay, how can we solve our climate crisis because this planet is hotter than ours and is existing? So it's, I would say, curiosity is is the prime driver of, of, of what we do. But that's not to say that there's not any, um, any tangible benefits for application. I mean, basically building building an incredibly complicated telescope that you strap on top of a rocket flies out and unfolds, you know, and will work perfectly for a decade or two is probably one of the most technologically hard and challenging things you can hope to do. Mm -hmm. So building one of those, you learn an awful lot more about how to build telescopes, how to build optics. Um, Even looking at the data from telescopes, um, so there's examples where people have taken some of the techniques we've developed for looking at very distant galaxies, um, and astronomical images and applied them to, for example, medical imaging. Okay. So it's a similar sort of problem, you know, you're looking at a thousand images, maybe some of these images are a bit blurry or a cloud condition or whatever. Um, say you're looking at a thousand images trying to find, you know, the needle in a haystack, that one particular galaxy that for whatever reason you want to look at. So that's kind of similar to... So taking, these... taking, you know, a thousand biopsies and you're trying to find one uh, one cell that looks a little bit different than it. So there there are kind of um, translational uh, applications. And I guess that the technological advances sort of, it's like a rising tide rises all it, ships, like ex- everyone will benefit from it, it. Exactly. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. 
They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up, and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for five euro plus that. Uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts or you can pick just one podcast. Say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. The podcast studios are opening their doors to everyone this culture night. Come see the place where your favourite Headstuff podcast network shows are made. Get behind the scenes access, learn about production and record your very own five minute podcast. This is an opportunity not to be missed. Join us Friday the 23rd of September. Register on eventbrite.ie or see the Culture Night website for more details. We look forward to seeing you there. Tell us about your work and what you're doing and how you're hoping JWST will 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 impact that. Sure. sure. So um, mostly what I work on are, are what are called transients. So I'm interested in things that change in the sky. And they mostly change because um, because they explode. So I'm interested in how stars explode at the end of their lives as, as supernovae. Um, I'm interested in some other types of, of eruption that stars seem to do, particularly massive stars. Um, and I'm also interested in... Um, Why so do they? Like, just too much stress? <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> um, do you have it in a line? <laughs> uh, right, so stars explode at the end of their lives because they run out of fuel. Um, to, to clarify, since this is a point at which everyone starts to get nervous, our sun will not do this. Um, in our lifetime? In, in any lifetime. Okay. Um, Why? So our sun is quite a small star. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's... it's, it's well, pathetic yeah the the stars that um the stars that explode as supernovae are are typically as the type of supernova i look at it, typically sort of 10 times the more massive our than our sun um and will typically be like 20 50,000 times brighter okay more luminous so these are really massive stars so we're explode. safe we're safe um they just, do they just become unstable and they explode or so so massive stars run out of fuel in their core so um, we know that stars are powered by nuclear reactions in the centre of them. So you imagine you've got a big star, it's a big ball of gas. Yeah. And it's trying to collapse in on itself due to gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of squeezing in tighter and tighter due to gravity 
On the other hand, in the centre of the star, you've got nuclear reactions happening that produce energy. And that acts to push the star apart. Mm-hmm. So you've got two competing forces. You've got you know energy generated in the centre of the star pushing it apart. You've got gravity crushing it in. What happens at the end of a star's life? Basically runs out of the nuclear fuel it's burning. But then wouldn't gravity make it collapse in on Gravity itself? makes it collapse in. So it goes... Whoop. But, but that's not an explosion. It's like an implosion. No, it isn't. It, you're absolutely right. But so it, it's, a, it's an... Im- no, you're, you're right. Oh. It's an implosion. It starts, it implodes. Um, and it implodes down till it's, it's very, very small um, and very, very dense. And at that point, it reaches a, a density limit that it can't collapse down anymore. So what happens is it stops its collapse and it forms a shock wave that then turns that implosion into an explosion. Oh, wow. And then the star explodes. Is that, but that's not the Big Bang. That's not the Big Bang. This, right, is, okay. this is just one star in one galaxy having... But having it's not the same, like, technical, that's not what happens during the Big Bang. No, no, it's no, no, quite, no. A, quite a different process to the Big Bang. Um, just, just, yeah, one star having one very bad day. One very bad day. Um, that lasts forever. And so, how can... So you're interested in those things. I, I'm interested in those things. I'm also interested in someone that we've only... And this is really what I want to use the GWST for, um, together with some collaborators. I'm interested in um, something called Kilanova. Okay. So uh, you might have heard in the news a couple of years ago, this discovery of gravitational waves. Nope. Damn. <laughs> give, give us okay, a top right. line. So gravitational waves are sort of a ripple... In, in space mm-hmm. that are caused when you have two very, very massive things colliding into each other. In particular, we think two, um, two things called neutron stars mm-hmm. that spiral into each other. And this gives you a Just by accident? Or are they... They're, they're in a binary. Orbit. They're orbiting okay. around each other and they get closer and closer and then eventually, in some cases, they'll, they'll collide into each other. And you have, a, again, a bright transient, so this little flash of light in the sky you have this burst of gravitational waves. We can come back to those later if you want. That's probably yep. a whole other hour to talk about. Um, so you see a, a, a flash of light from these these kilonovae. Um, why kilonovae are interesting? Um, you wearing any jewellery? Um, no, a watch. Uh, is it gold? N- no. Ah, unfortunate. So all all of all of the gold that in, in the world. This is all formed a few billion years ago before the Earth's formed out of these collisions of neutron stars. So you can't recreate gold, like it, they've all happened. So so all of this is gold that w- was was formed before our solar system formed in these these uh, this particular type of, of cosmic explosions, these kilonovae. So it's like a, when this happens, that's gold is formed. Yes, gold, other elements, or particular elements that we form in gold's these. gold's quite heavy, isn't it? Yeah. So does it just rain gold after these things crash into each other or do they, does the gold yeah. attach to something or where does it go? So you have a sort of expanding cloud of, um, of heavy elements. Right. Probably um, could be maybe a few hundredths of the mass of our sun. Uh, expanding cloud of heavy elements, gold, all the stuff, the cesium, tellurium, all sorts of exotic stuff. Um, I just said gold is gold's one that yes, most people we know. Yeah. know and care about. Yeah. Um, so these these heavy elements then kind of go out into into our galaxy and they get kind of caught up in clouds of gas that then go on to form other stars, other planets. There's like a giant cosmic sort of recycling. So you can 
trace back something like from from a planet to mm. a kilonovae that happened. Do you think that James Webb will help you to track that backwards, or what are you hoping so, that it will do? So we can't we can't track back a particular bit of gold to a particular kilonova. Okay. Um, unfortunately, because the, the kilonova were too long ago, and that that all that material has been dispersed into gold watches. Um, but what we can do is find kilonovae and, and watch them while they happen. And kilonovae are pretty rare, so we're not going to see one in our own galaxy. Um, or well, we might, but we'll probably have to wait, you know, a few thousand years or so. Right, okay. But if you have but, James Webb, can you not almost look back in time? Exactly. Oh, you can, okay. You can, you can look in other galaxies outside our own, and kilonovae are rare. You might have one per galaxy per 10,000 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're if you're looking at ten thousand galaxies, then you see one a year. Oh yeah. So we found in 2017, we found uh, we found a kilonova. Um, we observed it. We saw some of the elements that was forming, and there was a lot of excitement in the community about it. Um, but we want to find more. We want to study more of them. See, you know, what they all look like. How do they work? Um, once uh, astronomy is kind of like Pokemon, you know, it's like once you, you collect one of them, then suddenly you have to collect more of yeah. them and, and more of them. Um, and then before you know it, your house is full of, of Kilanovi. Um So no, we, we want to find more Kilanovi. <laughs> we we want to find more of them to, to, to study how they work. So the survey is survey telescopes. These are typically smaller telescopes on the ground that are, are trying to find them. Um, and if we find one or if we find something that looks like a kilonova, then we'll want to point bigger telescopes at it to try and, and get more data, to get more detailed information on it. If you find one, how long will it be in that position? Kilonovae are pretty short-lived. So after about a week, maybe two weeks, they've faded away and they're too dim to observe. So you'd need quick access need to, get to it pretty, pretty quickly. So um, I'm part of a, a collaboration called Engrave, so this is a large um, pan-European sort of consortium of, of astronomers. There's about 250 people that have come together to try and find uh, find Kilnovi and, and study them in detail. Um, and we have basically pre-allocated chunks of time on telescopes to do this. So we have time on some of the big ESO telescopes, mm-hmm. uh, the European Southern Observatory facilities in Chile. Uh, we also have time on on the James Webb Telescope uh, and other other telescopes as well. So as soon as one of these things is found, then we just have to Press hit the go button. and you know suddenly point there and and get some data. That's so exciting! Yeah. Also, like such an efficient use of time. Like, will would whoever's working on. JWST at the time be like, hang on a second, you can't just ruin what I'm doing and come in here with your Kilanova. That, that, that's, um, <laughs> yeah, there is a little bit of that. So, um, like it's really competitive. It is, it is really competitive. Um, so, so I've been at the telescope sometimes um, where you will be observing something and you have uh, what's called a, this target of opportunity trigger comes in where, you know, somebody says, ah, something really exciting has happened over there, stop what you're doing, point the telescope there. And, you know, you might grumble a little bit if you're in the middle of doing something, but this is generally only allocated for something very cool and exciting. So it's also kind of kind of fun to do. And you get to hang around and see what it is then because you've been there. Yeah. yeah. Where um, is, like, where do you control it from, James it, Webb? So JWST, you you can control from your your sofa. Um, oh well, they just give you a login, like. Well, they don't they don't give you a login. Oh, they don't they don't let you touch. They don't let well they don't let me touch anything. Okay. Um, no, so th- it's controlled from operation center in the US. Yeah. Um, but 
you will do all of the kind of all of the the preparations will basically configuring how you want all of the instruments to be set up and mm-hmm. you know how long you want to point at a particular position all of that stuff you you can just do from your laptop and you will send that over then to to the, the operations team and they look over it and you know check what you're doing is is correct and see if you're not pointing the telescope at the sun or anything you really don't want to do like that <laughs> yeah. um, and then those commands will get uploaded to the telescope and the telescope will observe that send back the data and and how does it work with that's so fascinating like do you like is there like a map of this of this sky? like how do you know where to point, where to point? it so there, there's actually a whole bunch of maps of the sky right. so there are um, but obviously like w- past the sky yes we have maps of the sky but like of the outer universe. So yeah, we have. Uh, there's a number of telescopes now that are, are making have been making surveys of the whole sky. So these are uh, typically small telescopes. It might be mirrors that are about the size of this table. So so one one point two meters, something mm-hmm. like that. And they have a big camera on them, and they just point at the sky night after night, mapping it out like the Google car. Like the Google car, so I mean, th- but I mean, this is something we've been doing for. So then two you're putting half- just in like numbers you put you put in the coordinates, yeah. Coordinates, yeah. Um, so sometimes you will have something you want to point your telescope at that you know at know about from this this kind of one of these maps, and obviously the the image the data you get will be a lot better than typically what you have in these maps. Other times you might um, you mightn't actually know where where to look. You might just say, well, I want to find. I want to find a very. I want to find the most distant galaxy anyone's ever found. Yeah. So you don't know where that is in advance. Zoom so out. you just in. point your telescope somewhere, open the shutter, and and take as long an exposure as you can, and then see what you found. So it's kind of like fishing. Do we know how this might sound a stupid question, but do we know where the edge is? Like what? What is there where, a boundary? Is, ah, so. We don't know the full extent of the universe, yeah. but there is a, a, an observable horizon. So there's basically a point which we, we can't... Is that because we, of the limits of technology or because... So it's because of the expansion of the universe. So there's parts of the universe already that are, are receding away from us so fast that we can't, we can't see. And we don't know if they're receding into obscurity or if they're receding into something else. So the, like Are they fading out? No, they're still there. They're just dispersed. As in, they're too far from too us. Too far from to us, see. yeah. But if we had a more powerful telescope again, would we be able to see them? No, there's unfortunately not. There's there's there's, uh, there's a limit. There's two kind of limits that come into play. The first is what you're you're talking about. So just the limitation of your telescope of your instrument. You know, you build a bigger telescope, you can see fainter galaxies further away. But then there's also the limit of um, what's called the observable horizon of the universe. So basically. Mm-hmm. How far can we see in the universe? And this is is not determined by how big your telescope is. Rather, it's determined by um, by cosmology and by the the structure of the universe. So, is it like if you're looking out across the sea, mm. and the horizon is there? Like, even if there was more sea, there's still going to be a horizon. Exactly. But that's because the Earth is not flat. Exactly. So the universe is also not flat. Well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. No, so we don't actually know. The, the universe appears um, flat to the best of our measurement precision at the moment. Okay. But this is also, this is also something that people are, are kind of working on is what is... Uh, but how is it flat if you can look up and down and left and right and it's all around? 
So when we talk about flat uh, in in three dimensional space, it gets a little bit um, yeah okay. It gets a bit messy. Yes, um, the, it's on a single plane. What might what might help is um, if you have flat space time and you draw uh, a triangle. Yeah, you measure the three angles on it. They add up to one hundred and eighty degrees. Mm-hmm. If you were to get a balloon and you were to draw a triangle on it, yeah, and you measure the angle at the, each of the three corners, you'll find they add up to more than 180 degrees. Because the balloon is curved. Because Yeah. And that, that's the same with our universe. So, so then you if you keep a, blowing into the balloon, mm. that that triangle will continue to expand and the angles change again. Is that why the expanding universe is not able to be fully quantified? Because it's expanding. Ask a cosmologist. Okay. <laughs> no. So, um... Because uh, the balloon is an yeah. analogy that yeah. that works, right? So yes, say you is. have a, an empty balloon and you mm. draw loads of dots all mm. over it. Yeah. And then you blow into it. All of those dots expand away from yeah. each other in the way mm. that the mm. universe is expanding exactly. away from itself. So actually probably a better, uh, 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 nearly better analogy than the dots in a balloon is if you have like a, a, a brack or something in the oven you have like all the sultanas and oh, right, okay, and yeah. stuff like that and it's expanding in all directions so everything is moving away from each other and if you were to pick one particular sultana and sit yeah. on top of it and you're to look at all the other sultanas nearby you'd see that they all seem to be moving away from you and that's also a feature of our universe that no matter where you sit in the universe everything seems to be moving expanding away, away. except what I want to know what so if we're if the universe is a sultana bake <laughs> What is the oven and where is the limit? Like <sighs> that is a big question. Can James Webb answer that question? Probably not. Directly no. But it can give but, us more information. So at the moment we have um we have a model of how how the universe is expanding and how that expansion is actually accelerating. So the universe is expanding faster and faster. There's a lot of things we don't know. We don't know why the universe is is expanding, seems to be expanding faster over time. Um, some people talk about uh, refer to this as dark energy. By mm-hmm. the way, um, so JWST will help us kind of test down those models, and we might find something, some small deviation or difference that we say, oh, this this allows us to refine the models a little bit, or maybe even rule out some models and say, well, it can't be this because of some detail of how it's expanding. But then there's also some of the questions like, well, what is um, what is the universe expanding into? Well. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, it's not it's not expanding into anything. But it how is, can it not expand into anything? <laughs> it's because it all it is all there is, and it is expanding. But if it's all there is and it's expanding, what? Oh, oh, uh, no, my brain is broken. I can't. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's so hard to conceive. But, but, isn't the, it? but that's okay. It's 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 not something that humans are are. We don't have an intuitive feel for this. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a perfectly sensible question is, you know, something is expanding. Well, what's it expanding into? And you have to say to people, well, it's it's um, it's not really expanding into anything. It just is expanding. Yeah, I, I don't. It's <laughs> not a satisfying answer. Um, it, it isn't. I, I agree with you. It is not a satisfying answer. But I feel like a lot of your job is not satisfying answers, but that it's the curiosity that drives you. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we need to know? About GWST. About about the universe. <laughs> no, Where that's it. <laughs> you know it all now.
Well, I suppose to f- one of the what I'm kind of most excited about GWST is is not necessarily what we're expecting to find with it. So if you look at every telescope that's being built, there's science goals, science drivers. You can't just say, you know, give me $10 billion, I want to build a telescope. You know, mm-hmm. people say, well, why do you want to build it? And you have to say, well, I want to study the early universe. I want to study the atmospheres of exoplanets. But then if you look at all of these telescopes and facilities when they're built, they answer these questions, sure. You know, the Hubble Space Telescope was built to to measure distances to, to nearby galaxies, measure the expansion of the universe. It did that fantastically. But then also what's 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 really exciting is you find the, the unknown unknowns. You find the stuff that you didn't even, even know you, you should for. look for. And so we don't know what JWST is gonna find. So that's a really the really exciting bit of it. Okay, well, maybe you could keep in touch with us and if something exciting happens, you can come and explain it to us again. I will I will try my best. <laughs> uh, Dr. Morgan Fraser, thank you so much and the very best of luck. Uh, I hope that, uh, well, could it be any time that, 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 that you say, we need James Webb now because we just found a... So, well, it, it, so we have um, what's going to kind of give us our, our starting gun to start looking for Kilanova is we have these gravitational wave detectors mm-hmm. on the ground. And at the moment, they're doing some upgrades and commissioning, so it'll be mm, six months, maybe nine months before they're they're kind of back online. And once they're looking at the sky again, then they will start telling us, well, we think we saw one of these Kilanovi over here, you know, here's where you should start looking. And we're looking in the meantime with other telescopes, but probably when, when the gravitational wave detectors are back online is when we'll do, things will really heat up. Very cool. Well, <laughs> keep in touch about that. That was Dr. Morgan Fraser from the School of Physics in University College Dublin. That is another episode of Basically. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara, our music is by Only Ruin, and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Catch you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 